We start this series on Galatians. And let me just say this before I give you some background. I, I do believe that uh, this, this series will be the most beneficial series that we'll have in unpacking and um, a good theological understanding of the gospel. Other than any other book that we'll go through this year, uh, the next six to eight weeks as we study through Galatians will prove to be uh, the book that will explain why we say we're a gospel-centered and outward-focused church. Because the book of Galatians is about the gospel. And so just a brief background here. The Apostle Paul wrote this book. Um, the Apostle Paul was a church planning missionary. What that means is he went to different regions and he would plant a church. He would plant the gospel there. A church would, would arise. He would have leaders there. Then he would move on to another town. And when he got to that town, he would plant the gospel. A church would rise up. He'd raise up leaders and he'd go to another town and he would do this consistently. You can read about this through the book of Acts. Now, the way that Paul corresponded to these churches is that he wrote letters. Sometimes he wrote letters of encouragement, um, as we see in the book of Philippians. And sometimes he wrote, wrote letters of uh, correction or instruction, as we saw in 1 Thessalonians. And sometimes he writes letters on rebuke and correction, as we see in First and Second Corinthians. And then sometimes he writes letters of rebuke and correction um, with, with much anger. And that's exactly what we see in the book of Galatians. Um, Paul's demeanor in this is that he's very angry. And I'm going to tell you why in a second. But the reason why I can tell you that he's angry, even in week one, we see that he uses words like accursed, that he wished people would would be accursed. Um, He uses words like he wished people would emasculate themselves. We're just going to be theological. We're not going to be biological. But he says words like that in the Bible. Um, he, he speaks in a tone of just, just righteous indignation. And here's why. The situation in Galatia is this. Paul started that church. They believed in the gospel. After Paul left, uh, a quick time, there was a group of people who came called Judaizers. And it's important that you remember the Judaizers because the Judaizers will continue to be the antagonists in this letter. Um, The Judaizers were people who said, in order to be a Christian, you needed to believe in Jesus and his life, his death, and his resurrection. And you also needed to obey the Mosaic ceremonial law. So the diet laws, you needed to obey the Sabbath. And then the main issue was circumcision. And, he was, and they would teach that these Gentile believers had to believe in that. Now, um, just so that we can be clear here, Jewish people were the people that were first Christians. Everyone that, when the, when the disciples were Jewish, and when Jesus ascended into the heaven, the first church, the early church, were Jewish people. And then as the gospel continued to go forth, as it reflected God's character, all types of people began to believe the gospel of nations and tribes and tongues. And so you have Jewish people and Gentiles. Uh, Gentiles are anyone that are not ethnic Jews. I just want to make that clear, because someone asked me earlier, what is a Gentile? You guys talk about Gentiles. And I'm like, listen, if you're not an ethnic Jew, you're a Gentile. Whether you like it or not, we're all pork-eating Gentiles, right? (laughs) So Paul Paul now corrects these, these, these Judaizers because their teaching is false. We've said this before, simple equation. Jesus plus anything else equals nothing. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And so that's why Paul writes this letter. The, the letter in itself, it, it, it shows us that the surface sins that we see is that there's racial and cultural and ethnic divide and disunity, um, that there's strife. And yet, the way that Paul addresses these things over and over again in this, in this, in this book, in this letter, is by pointing them back to the gospel over and over again. And the last thing I want to point out as a background is that, that this, this book is written to Christians, And so even though the the primary focus of this book is the gospel, we need to know this, that as Christians, we need the gospel. 
Tim, Tim Keller says this, that most Christians think that the gospel is just the ABCs of Christianity, meaning that it's something that, that we just believe to become Christians, and then after that we move on to more advanced doctrines. But he says, absolutely not. Because when you read the, the book of Galatians, what you see is every single one of our problems, every time that we sin, it's because it's a failure to believe in the gospel, meaning that the gospel in itself has renewing power to change, transform, and renew not only the human heart, not only individuals, but communities and cities. And so we believe that the gospel, when applied to everything, really does change things. And so the gospel is not just the ABCs of Christianity, but it's the A through Z. And so here we have it in this book, and then Paul picks up here in chapter 1, verse 1 through 2. It's the word of the Lord. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me to the churches that are in Galatia. Before we dive even deeper into this, would you guys bow your heads and pray with me as we ask God's Spirit to illuminate his word. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to gather together this evening. And God, we do pray this. We pray for your spirit. And I, I pray for your spirit right now, Lord, to anoint this time, God, that we would see Jesus. God, throughout this letter, what Paul is pointing to is Jesus. And so, God, I pray that you would be exalted. God, that we may be able to submit to your character by grace and through faith. So, Father, we thank you, God, that you were with us by your spirit and that we can trust you and that we can follow you and we can trust your word. God, I pray that you'd remove me, that what we would see is Jesus. And God, that we would worship Jesus and for all that he's done. So, God, we pray that you would um, raise our affections for him, our desires and our intellect. God, we thank you for all that you've done and all that you will do. In Christ's name, amen. In 1963, uh, a man by the name of Martin Luther King Jr. You may have heard of him. Tomorrow you'll get a day off because of him. Some of you. <laughs> he, he said a speech. In the speech, you guys know the speech. It's one of the most famous speeches that he's ever, that he's ever made, and it's the I Have a Dream speech. The this, this speech in itself was significant, to me at least, when I read it, because um, yesterday when I was doing something in Arizona that I never thought I would do, I was raking these things called leaves, um, I've never had a backyard before, and now that I have a backyard, I was raking these leaves yesterday, and I never knew how long it took to rake leaves. I was thinking, don't we have money to pay somebody to do this? My wife was looking out the window, you do it, right? And so I put, I put, I put on my earphones, and I was listening to the I Have a Dream speech. I wanted to listen to it, and he starts off, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. starts off by saying this. He goes, I'm happy to be here. I'm happy to be here in front of all you people. And then he goes on to say, 100 years ago, a man whose symbolic figure that we, we, we stand under this day, that man being Abraham Lincoln, he signed the Emancipation Proclamation. And he goes, that was huge because it brought the, the African-American slave freedom. That, that what he signed, this event that happened 100 years ago, it brought freedom to the Negroes. And then, then he goes on to say, however, 100 years later, we still don't have that freedom. How could it be that something happened 100 years ago that was supposed to bring freedom, and yet, as we see it now, we don't have freedom? And at the very end of the letter, you know, you, you, the speech, you see it after 18 minutes of him talking, he quotes again, and he quotes a Negro spiritual, and he says, free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty, we're free at last. And his whole thrust of the message is, we have to fight for freedom. The reason why they were there in D.C. is they had to fight for freedom. They had to fight for that. In the same vein is why Paul, uh, in a bigger scale, not just freedom from, from another man, not just freedom in a country, but cosmic freedom. Freedom from sin, freedom from the guilt of sin, from the punishment of sin. Paul writes this letter so passionately saying, we, we have to fight for this. It's why we titled the series, Fighting for Grace. 
And so when you see Paul writing this, it, much, much bigger than Martin Luther King Jr. and whom I love and I'm thankful for, much bigger is the freedom that has happened in the past and which God had, had done in Christ Jesus. Not that he signed it with ink, but he signed it with his blood, that all people who believe in him should be free. And, and these Judaizers were getting in the way of contaminating that freedom. Because if you add anything else to the gospel, it's no longer freedom because it's no longer gospel. And so what we're going to look at today, just this week one, is laid a foundation of what is the gospel and, and why it's worth fighting for. What is the gospel and why it's worth fighting for? Uh, verse 3 through 5 gives us what is the gospel, and we'll spend, spend some time on this. Verse 3 says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age, according to the will of God, of God our Father, and to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And so Paul starts off first, um, and he says this. The word I want you to underline if you have a pen or a pencil in verse 4 is to deliver. I start there because that word deliver communicates something. If we're really going to get the gospel, we have to start there. Because most people or the average person on the street thinks that the way that you become a Christian is like any other religion. Meaning you follow the teachings or you follow the example of its leader. Yet, what the gospel lets us know that is that was impossible for us. The reason why Paul uses the word deliver, or if you have an NIV, he uses the word rescue, is because it shows that we didn't have the ability within ourselves to follow Jesus' teaching or even to follow Jesus' life. So Jesus had to come to deliver us. Here's what I mean. That word is also used in Exodus. When the people of God, the Israelites, are in slavery. They cannot free themselves from, from Pharaoh. And so God divinely intervenes and he frees them. He delivers them. The word in the New Testament is also used when Peter is in prison and then he has, doesn't have the ability to get out of prison and yet God divinely frees him. And so it communicates that God had to do something. We, we have what the spiritual, uh, excuse me, what the theologians call spiritual inability. That, that it wasn't the fact that, that we decided to call for God or we decided to reach out for God, but yet God himself had to do something because we could not do it. That's the beginning part of the gospel is that it starts with God who has the ability and desires to move and do something. So he goes on. This is what Jesus did. He gave himself for our sins to deliver us. He gave himself for our sins. Jesus gave himself. What that says there is that Jesus becomes our substitute. And so it wasn't a general offering of sacrifice that he just offered a general offering. This is something that's specific, meaning he completed what we couldn't complete. Meaning Jesus didn't just buy us a second chance. I, I don't know if you're anything like me, but, but when I became a Christian and my first few years as being a Christian, um, that's what I always think. I, I always thought that, that, that what Jesus did was he looked at my life that I lived apart from him and said, I will forgive you from everything that you've done before you were a Christian. And then what I'll do is I'll give you a fresh start. And then now you live as best as you can according to my law, according to my teachings, according to my will, and then that's how you'll grow as a Christian. And then at first, especially if you're a new believer, it's awesome. You're like, this is great. I never want to sin. I don't want to listen to rap music. I don't want to do any of this anymore, right? Get all my CDs, throw them out the window for you, Jesus. You get, a, you get like a witness wear shirt, you, whatever, whatever it is that you... you, you <laughs> You get sold out for Jesus, whatever language you, you have at that moment. And then all of a sudden you, you, you realize you're just as sinful as you were before you were a Christian. And yet now you feel even more guilt. Here's why. 
Because we have, a under, we have a, a false understanding of the gospel that somehow when Jesus saved us, he only forgave our sins from, from the past. And that we've been saved and now we're, we're supposed to be better and we're supposed to get better and better and better. And yet what this teaches is that's not true. Jesus, Jesus didn't just save our past sins. Jesus died for our sins past and for present and for future. And that he completed it. That means when Jesus went to the cross that he, that he suffered the ultimate sacrifice. He, he became the ultimate sacrifice and he suffered all of our, every single person who would believe in Jesus, every single ounce of wrath and condemnation that God had for you, God poured it out, every drop, on Jesus. And not only that, that Jesus is also a righteous substitute, meaning what God required from you and I, he, he got from Jesus. Jesus lived the perfect life, and therefore now we do not stand under condemnation. Just, just so that we can get that, I, I want to break it down even, even more. There's a difference between probation and freedom. Um, probation, those of you guys who've ever been on probation, no, no judgment, but if you've, ever been on, if, if you've ever been on probation, you know that there's certain things that you can do and there's limitations and restrictions that you can't do. If you were ever to cross that line, all of a sudden you'd be back in jail. That's probation. You have a limited freedom, but there's restrictions. Freedom is just that. You're free. What Adam had in the garden was probation. Adam stood before God, God says, you can eat of this, you can eat of this, you can eat of this, but you can't eat of this. And if you do eat of this, death will reign. What we have in Christ Jesus is better than what Adam had. Because Christ does not say, if you do this, if you don't do this, if you do this, if you don't do that, I take away my love from you. It's truly free. Because he completed it. God does not look at us and say, I'm waiting for your next moral um, lapse. I'm looking for your next sin. Because when God sees us, according to this, he sees what Jesus offered for us. And ultimately, Jesus offered up his record, and so God accepts us freely. So the gospel is that God gave himself, Jesus gave himself to be a life substitute and a death substitute, a death substitute something that we could have done. That's, that's, that's really good news. And Paul goes on to say, why? Why this happened? He delivered us from this pres- present evil age according to the will of God, of God our Father. And so he says the will that he has here is, is not because the way, the reason why God saved us is not because of anything to do with us. There's nothing here that indicates that, that God decided to save us because there was something good in us. He decided to save us because one day we would be, we'd be good people for his kingdom. One day we'd be useful for his kingdom. It says no, according to his will, meaning it was by grace, which means unmerited favor. And that word will there is the Greek word thelema, which could also mean choice or pleasure or desire, meaning it was God's desire. So when you go back to the beginning, we had an inability to reach out to God, yet God gave himself freely so that we may be free. And the Father did this because it pleased him, that it, it brought pleasure to him to save sinners like you and I. And this brings joy to God. And there's nothing that we did to earn it, therefore there's nothing that we do to lose it because we're completely accepted in Christ Jesus. That, that's the gospel in a nutshell. That's it. And so Paul, Paul begins by laying that out, and he says the result of it in verse 5 is ultimately to the praise of God's glory, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. That's it. Um, we, we should be able to close up the, the Bibles and have Garth and the band come up and do some communion and, and, and sing and go home, except for um, after Paul lays that out is when he now gets really upset. Now, normally in most letters for, for Paul, this is the time where he starts and he, and he says, oh, greetings, this is me, Paul, here's the gospel. And then he starts saying things like, hey, it's good to see you. Tell Chloe I said, what up? When you see her, give her some knuckles, chest pound. I mean, you know, I miss your cooking. And then he goes on to a letter 
And yet, Galatians is the only letter that he doesn't do that. He just like doesn't have any time. And so my, my guess is Paul's somewhere, uh, somewhere writing this, this, this letter, and he's just angry. And so he starts off in verse 6. He goes, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there's another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. So Paul goes, I'm astonished. Like, I can't believe this is happening, that you're, you're turning away from him who called you. Uh, one of the, I'm trying to illustrate this, is the, the, the best way I can illustrate this is I went to a wedding uh, just a few months before my wedding, several years ago, and it was at the Biltmore. And I knew I got invited to a wedding at the Biltmore. I wore the best clothes that I can possibly find. And I got to this wedding. Let me just tell you, this was the most ghetto, hood-rich wedding you could ever go to. So I'm showing up, I'm showing up to this wedding thinking, yeah, it's the Biltmore, ballin', right? And then I get there, and the guy who's getting married was a former friend of mine and his bride, and there's guys with, with you know, triple-X Jordan basketball shorts in. They have, like, cornrows, half cornrows, the other half, like, froed out. They're walking in. And I'm like, this is some nonsense. Like, the people from the Biltmore are like, what have we done? All right? And... We're, we're at this wedding, and I'm just looking at my wife, or my, my fiance at the time, um, and I'm thinking, like, this is, this is ridiculous. This is what happened. Never mind. Like, you, yeah. <laughs> and so a couple months, a couple months after that, um, I'm at the gym, and I, and, um, and I see the bride. And, and I, I didn't know her at all. I never knew her. I just knew the guy. And I, and I went up to her, and I said, hey, my name's Ricardo. I was at your wedding. It was, it was, it was beautiful. Nah, it really wasn't beautiful, but it was a good thing for me to be there. And... Uh, and two months, two months, two months after the wedding, she goes, oh, I left, I left him. We're not even married anymore. It, that's exactly the way Paul is right now. Paul is saying, whoa, 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 whoa. That was so quick. You guys believed the gospel when I told you that God had forgiven you, past, present, and future. You said, my chains fell off and my heart was set free. I rose with forth to follow thee. You, you are my rock. You are my redeemer. Jesus is my Lord. He's my savior. And then Paul says, I'm astonished. You're deserting him. And the, the word deserting there, um, it literally means that it's, it's not passive, meaning they were voluntarily, actively walking away from the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul says, you're deserting the one who called you. And he lays out the order of salvation, um, ultimately the order of the gospel, excuse me. And that is God calls us, and it's an effectual call, meaning when God calls us, he enables us to be able to respond to him. And then that response now, because of our love for him, we live for him. So that God calls us. We don't initiate it. God is the initiator. He starts it. We respond, and we live for him. And Paul says, I can't believe this is happening. In fact, he goes forward with anger, and he says, you're turning to a different gospel. Verse 7 says, not that there's another one. But there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. And he says they trouble you, which, which means there's, there's an emotional, deep unsettledness. Me, meaning these, these Christians that are there are going, okay, Paul said that it's grace, grace and grace alone, and faith and faith alone. But then these guys who seem to be mature Christians, who, who seem to know other mature Christians, they're saying that it's grace and faith and be circumcised. It's, it's grace and faith and be obedient. And all those things wrapped together, that's how we become Christians. And so they were influenced by these leaders. These were leaders. They they had good orthodox teaching. They believed in Jesus, but they added to the gospel. And Paul says, that's not the gospel. That's not. And he goes forward to say, they trouble you and they distort it. Now, the word distort there is important here because it means to reverse. 
And so like I said before, that the order of the gospel is God calls us, we don't call him. He enables us in his call to respond to him and then we live for him. God starts it. To reverse it would be able to say, there's something you need to do. Then there's something God does. And then if you continue to do what God wants you to do, you'll sustain it. And Paul says, when you begin to reverse the gospel, you've lost the gospel. And, and, and he's, pretty, he's pretty passionate about this. He says, if you add works to this, you've lost it. In fact, Martin Luther said this, there, there are two different righteousness. There's Christian righte- righteousness, and then there's works-based righteousness. And he says, there's, and there's, only, there's only one alternative to Christian righteousness, which is a passive righteousness, meaning nothing that we do to be righteous before God. The only other alternative is works-based. And so if you're not basing your understanding of who you are, your meaning on Jesus Christ, that means you're basing it on something else. You could be basing it on your children. This is easy to do. For those of you guys with kids, it is so easy. I have two little boys, and one of them barely knows my name, and, and the other one barely knows anybody. And yet, I, I, I want them to be good. I want them to do well. And, and when I hear other, ki- other parents say, well, you know my son, he's reading through Galatians. And I'm like, well, my son knows Paul, right? And I feel, I, I feel like at some way I have to justify myself by having the kids that I have. And you know what it's like. Kids run around, they do stuff, and you're watching your kid, and, and you guys are going to be able to see this afterwards because after the service, my son runs around here because he thinks he owns a place. And, 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 and I want to be like, oh, you know what? That's a good kid right there. Look, he's got his knees up. You know, he's probably going to go to the NFL. And there's a sense where I find myself being justified, made right by my parenting. Some of you guys, it's your relationship. Some of it, it's your job. I mean, there are so many other gospels that we believe in. Even though we say that we believe that Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior, there's always something else that we're looking to for meaning and for value, for worth, that if I didn't have that thing, it wouldn't matter. Paul says when you begin to do that, it, it, it perverts the gospel. It distorts the gospel. It no longer is about Christ and what Christ has done, but it's not about you and what you've done or you and what you have to do. And Paul says when that happens, it's no gospel at all. And he continues to go forward, and now he gets really angry. He says this, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that we preach to you, let him be accursed. Have we said before? So now I say it again. If anyone is preaching you a gospel contrary to the one that you received, let him be accursed. And so Paul, Paul says this. He says, hypothetically speaking, if I were to come back to you and then start telling you that it's works plus faith, then let me be accursed. He goes, hypothetically, if an angel showed up and began to teach you these things that were false and that were contrary to the gospel that we talked to, let him be accursed. And, and the reason why I say Paul's angry in here is that word accursed, it, it, it means anathema, which means uh, condemnation. And so put bluntly, it means if you see them and people who are teaching this, may they be damned. May, may, may they go to hell. Like, that's the harsh language that Paul has here. He, he's so passionate about the gospel and protecting the gospel and fighting for grace that he says when you add anything else to the gospel other than grace and grace alone, and faith in Christ, in Christ alone, if you add anything into it, if you add any cultural baggage, if you add, you got to cut your hair, you got to grow your hair, you got to live in a certain city, you got to wear certain clothes, anything, he goes, it's no longer the gospel. And anyone who teaches this gospel, he says, whether it's an angel or whether it's even an apostle, may, may they be accursed. And so we see this. It, it's it's kind of hard to read this, this um, verse 8 when it says, we or an angel, and not to think of, um, of the Mormon faith. Uh, this is by any means no offense to any of you guys here who are Mormon. Uh, when I became a Christian, I had some Mormon friends, and um, one of the things that they thought would be cool is that they'd invite all their missionary friends to come um, have meetings with me. 
over and over and over again. <laughs> and it, it began to be fun. And I told him, listen, I can't be a part of your religion. I mean, clearly, I don't want to be like the only black dude in a room. And <laughs> God's humor in that, huh? Um, and, and we used to go back and forth on uh, mainly issues like this. Not just because if, if you know anything about the Mormon faith, uh, one of the things that they have in their teaching is that the angel of Moroni come down and he, he taught to Joseph Smith. And so when I see this angel, I'm like, oh, that's it. And, and it, it's easy for us to look at them. And, and when you talk to them, honestly, you can get to the point where you can talk to, to Mormons and it seems like they're saying the same thing that we're saying. And in fact, one, one, one friend of mine said this. He goes, I was sitting down talking to a bishop and the bishop said, you know what? I think we're saying the same things, but they just sound different. And he goes, no, no, no. We're saying two radically different things but they just, they, they, they sound the same, which therein lies the problem. Two radically different things, and yet they can sound the same. Now, it'd be easy for me to say, now, let's unpack the Mormon faith or the Jehovah Witness faith, but Paul, Paul, Paul's talking to people like you and people like me. He's talking to Christians. He's saying, listen, it's easy for you to get the gospel and say amen to the gospel. Oh, past, present, and future, grace, 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 and then yet, now functionally begin believing in another gospel. And for us, oftentimes, it's moralism. It really is. Um, I, two of the first people that I started discipling as a Christian um, were two guys that were not Christian, and I was a believer, and, and I, I had a relationship with them. There's some guys I'd played football with, and, and they wanted to do a Bible study. They were open to doing a Bible study. I said, oh, this would be great. And we did a Bible study in this apartment of a guy that him and his girlfriend lived in. And another guy had like, this guy had like five girlfriends, which was just exhausting when he would talk about them. And I was just like, man, you know, and I begin to tell him, listen, God does not like that. God, God does not like the fact that you guys are just promiscuous with your life. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to find a place to live and not live with your girlfriend. I want you to just find one girlfriend. And then, and, then, and, then, and I gave them all these things that I thought that they needed to do in order for them to really be strong Christians. And I said those words. In order for you to be a strong Christian, you need to do these things. And um, you know what they said to me? One of them just never talked to me. And the other one was just like, hey man, if that's what it means to be a Christian, man, I'm so glad for you. I'm glad that you were able to kick all this, but like, uh, I'm just not ready for that right now. And I walked away going, that's right. I laid down the truth and they walked away from it. You know, I brought it, you know, and just, I was persecuted. I made all types of stuff up. And, and, and guys, I was wrong. I was wrong. And here's why. I elevated God's law and his teaching, which is so beautiful, but I didn't elevate God's character. And so I gave them something to do, but not someone to submit to. And that's how you and I distort the gospel. So when they walked away from, from Christianity, they didn't walk away from Christianity. They walked away from some form of legalism. And there are many people today that walk away, what they think, they walk away from the church or they walk away from Christianity, but no, they're walking away from rules. And don't get me wrong, does God have rules? Yes. Does God have instructions? Yes. Does God have law? Yes. But it's meaningless if we don't first see Jesus. It's meaningless for us to tell people to do these things, all the imperatives, and not the indicatives. The indicatives are what God has done. We point people to submit to Jesus. And in submitting to Jesus, lives are changed. Lives are changed. Every single one of us, especially if you had an adult conversion, you know what it's like. I think young Christians, like barely what we call baby Christians, the language we give, the baby Christians, are, um, they get the gospel in ways that I wish most of us got. 
Because here's why. They're, they're so open to confess their sin. Why? Because they know they're already forgiven. They're so honest about who they are. Why? Because they had just seen Jesus. What happens is we learn something else. We are saved by grace and we love it. Grace, grace, save me. And then somehow we grow in our life by obedience. We grow in our life by, by works. And don't get me wrong. I'm not saying obedience is useless. Not at all. I'm just saying in the conversation of grace, obedience has to be left out. When it comes to how does one become a Christian, it is not about what she does or what she does not do. And I know that that, that that just ruffles our feathers because we see in Scripture, doesn't the Bible say obey? Absolutely. But it doesn't say obey because God's going to get you. That would be fear. It doesn't say obey or you're a bad person. That would be guilt. It said obey out of love for Jesus. So hear me out. The Christian who understands grace does not have to obey. The Christian who understands grace wants to obey. Freedom frees you to have the desire to want Jesus. Jesus frees you to have the desire to follow him. Jesus frees you to have the ability in yourself to follow his example and follow his teaching. But we cannot, submit, we cannot point people just to rules. We got to point them to Jesus. And in pointing them to Jesus, our desires are freed. Amen? And don't get me wrong. Let's just be honest. Your desires are freed, but you don't, you don't always want to follow. I don't always want to follow Jesus. But the motivation, ultimately, is the gospel. That's why every single morning, I have to wake up. Every single morning, you have to wake up, and you have to remind yourself, where's your righteousness coming from? Is it coming from a false gospel and what you have to do? Because if you're anything like me, when you wake up in the morning, the first thing that comes to your mind is what you need to do that day, or what you didn't do the day before. And not just sinful things. I got to call this person. I didn't call this person. I didn't email this person. Some of the pastors we were joking around earlier today, it's when you see somebody that you haven't emailed back, you're like, oh, hey! (laughs) You know I got that email, right? (laughs) I was about to email you. <laughs> it's not true, right? You just, you just got that guilt. And the, that's why every single morning we have to wake up and know today God loves me no more than he did yesterday because of what I did and no, no less because of what I did. He loves me completely in Jesus Christ. And so freedom in itself, it, it, can a Christian do anything? Yes. Is it wise for a Christian to do anything? Absolutely not. Can a Christian sin in certain ways that, that somehow God would love them any less? Absolutely not. I don't think it's wise because you'll have a lot of hurt and a lot of regret. Um, can, can, a, can a Christian do things that unbelievers do um, and, and yet God not bring punishment? Absolutely. Do you realize this? That for God to be able to punish those of you in Christ Jesus, God would be unjust. He'd be unjust. As dangerous as that sounds, just coming out of my mouth. That, that would, he'd be unjust because he's already exacted payment on Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And so Paul's whole point in this letter, as we'll see for the next several weeks, is don't jack with grace. Let grace be grace. What motivates us to obey is not a bunch of rules. What motivates us to obey is a life, and namely Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the good news of Jesus. God, we thank you for the hope that we have in him. And God, I, I, I pray, Lord, um, even in this moment, God, that those of us who are walking in condemnation, God, that you would free us. And you'd free us, Lord, because of the supreme teaching and the beautiful teaching of Jesus, but ultimately, Lord, because of the work of Christ, God, who laid down his life and gave himself for us, Lord, and that you accepted it, Lord, by raising him from the dead, and now we may walk in freedom. And so, Lord, as we still sin and yet keep on sinning, God, I pray that we repent to Jesus in a way that brings you glory. God, that we would realize that our our biggest problem is not so much disobeying you, Lord, 
but trying to rely on you, Lord, for our acceptance instead of relying on Jesus. God, this is not always easy, Lord, for our natural tendency, Lord, is to want to do something. And so, God, we ask that you would guide us. Father, we ask that you would lead us in your everlasting ways. And, Lord, it's fitting for us now to come to the table um, and to remember Jesus, Lord. And, um, God, we ask that you would strengthen us as a means of grace. In Jesus' name, amen.